You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. This episode is brought to you by the McKinsey Global Institute. Hello and welcome to this edition of the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Cecilia Mazeka, an editor with McKinsey Publishing based in Singapore. 25 years ago, India embarked on a journey of economic liberalization, opening its doors to globalization and market forces. The IMF expects GDP to grow over 7% this year, making India the world's fastest growing large economy. Powered by a rising middle class that's expected to more than triple to 89 million households by 2025, India has an attractive long-term future and compares favorably with other emerging markets. What's the road ahead? Our guests today are Nashir Kaka, senior partner in McKinsey's Mumbai office, and Anu Madgavkar, partner of the McKinsey Global Institute, authors of a new MGI report on India's ascent, which outlines five opportunities for India's growth and transformation. Also joining us to look at the implications for domestic and multinational companies is Alok Shirsaga, senior partner and leader of McKinsey's Asia Risk Practice. Welcome, everyone. Nashir, let me start with you. What is the road ahead for India's economy? Thank you, Cecilia. I think, um, firstly, as you outlined, um, we're in a pretty exciting time for India and uh, and companies in India, and including sort of uh, both multinational as well as domestic. India's going to be pretty much the third largest incremental GDP growth engine for the planet, right? And that's pretty significant if you think about India's size relative to the other massive geographies out there, like China or the US. And what's powering that growth is two or three things which are pretty unshakable. First is the trend towards urbanization, which is going to uh, uh, you know, increase uh, consumption power massively as well as economic leverage. The demographic changes that India is going to go through is, again, unshakable and undeniable. But I think powering those two, three things along with changes in government, the way the government is functioning, as well as changes in technology, are ensuring that this growth engine actually has several more cylinders than the few that we used to originally think about. That doesn't mean that this growth is going to be without air pockets. Right? India is very dependent on external factors such as monsoon for agriculture, external investment, et cetera, et cetera. But the underlying trend is undeniably positive to make this one of the largest growth engines for the for the world going forward. I mean, just if you think about the state we're sitting in today, Maharashtra, if it was a country, would be the 17th largest country in the world, just behind Germany. Alok, what are the opportunities that you see for domestic and multinational companies, given that India has so much to work with, as Nashir said? I think, as Nashir said, this is an extremely exciting time for leaders and entrepreneurs in India. And I think if you look at the most successful companies, they have grown vastly ahead of average GDP growth, right? So the best companies in India grow at 25 to 30% a year. Uh, some of the best banks in India have grown at north of 20% a year for 20 years in a row. Right? And this is the bit that when you look at you know, traditional companies, whether domestic or global, they miss the fact that India grows in jumps and spurts. And when you get your business model right, because so much opportunity exists, whether it's in terms of low penetration levels of financial services, low penetration levels of all sorts of healthcare and other services, when you start to get your business model right, 
you grow at 25-30%, not just 7%. So there's a huge underlying tailwind for all the reasons uh, Nausha talked about. But if you're good, you can grow two and three times that. And Anu, what's your perspective on India's growth and transformation? Is it at a particular inflection point? I do think India's growth is at an inflection point, and this is something we will see pan out over the next 10 to 15 years. One of the core structural drivers of that growth that Nausha talked about, which was urbanization, um, is really coming to a sort of tipping point, uh, back to the notion of an inflection point. If you look at data across India, it's very clear that when urbanization rates in districts or in states cross the threshold of about 35%, that's when you really start seeing productivity benefits kicking in. You see higher GDP per capita because those densities and urban centers suddenly get better connected with the rest of the world, better connected to markets. Citizens actually have better access to education, health, and so on. Now, what's happening for India as a whole is that the urbanization rate will cross this threshold for us as a country uh, over the next 10 to 15 years. And for some of the largest states, we will get as much as 50 to 60% urbanized by 2030. Uh, and that's really what's driving uh, you know, the fact that our states are as large and will be as large as very significant middle-income countries are today. For example, Maharashtra plus Gujarat will look like Brazil. The Indian policy framework today is to empower the states a lot more to decentralize funding, decision-making power. So you will actually see very dynamic and vibrant states almost competing with each other for resources, uh, being much more open to investment. Uh, and I think businesses, therefore, will have uh, a lot to pick and choose in terms of you know, thinking about their footprint in India. The growth story is pretty evident in that number itself, right, which is 69 megacities, essentially each with a million plus population. What, what most companies struggle with is that India is actually not a country, it's a continent. And each of these cities uh, in their very own right, wherein y you can look at each of these cities almost as many countries in, in some senses of the word, right? Getting down from the mass of India just to 69 cities is actually a great simplification when people think about India and their strategies to actually address this great market. If I said, well, actually conquering India is just about getting 69, you know, destinations right, it makes that opportunity much more meaningful. And as Anu said earlier in the MGI work, we've seen that these will power a significant portion of GDP growth. So if you get these cities right, you can capture a tremendous amount of opportunity in India. How can the private sector develop the right business models and strategies to address the opportunity of urbanization? I think there's a huge consumer opportunity because to Anu's point, as you get to that 35% number, the actual per capita GDP on that particular district actually more than doubles, right? So there's a huge consumer opportunity that the private sector needs to recognize. And to amplify Norsha's point, some of the demographics are very different, right? So actually, when you go down south, the demographics are more like southern Europe. So you actually need to know that the consumer growth there is actually in the relatively older population. So it's the 50 to 70-year-olds that actually have the purchasing power right, because of various uh, reforms and government payments and other things like that. So whereas if you go to the northeast of the country, it's all in the young, it's all in the 18 to 30 year olds, right? So going back to this theme of saying, look, there are regional business models with very different consumer preferences and a big inflection point, there's a huge amount of success associated with that. And frankly, I think your ambition needs to be 
I need to be growing at 30% a year, right? If you're not growing at 30% a year, you're missing the opportunity. The second big opportunity with urbanization is actually in infrastructure, right? So with the competition among state governments for resources and an increasing focus on governance as a big part of winning elections, people recognize that you have to improve infrastructure. And that is everything from water, sanitation, power, renewable power, uh, improving you know, uh, road systems, so on and so forth. And frankly, there's a huge opportunity for both domestic and global companies in the provision of that infrastructure, often leapfrogging generations of what's happened elsewhere through the use of smart meters, smart technologies, networked cities, so on and so forth. And that's a huge, to me at least, relatively untapped opportunity. We see that now with the smart city competition, uh, where now there are a designated set uh, of you know, 20 plus of these smart cities where there's enormous innovation. One of the situations we're involved in is in a city called Pune, where you can now see whether it's in terms of creating very different citizen engagement and associated infrastructure services is a huge private sector opportunity. And speaking of networks and being connected and, and having the right infrastructure in smart cities, can you all comment on the advance of digitization in India and uh, how uh, companies and decision makers can harness that opportunity that digital technologies can offer to raise productivity for India? It was for many years when you talked about digital and technology in India, one automatically referred to the tech sector, right, which traditionally has been the sector that served companies globally out of India on their technology needs. Um, that industry went from something like two and a half billion in the late 90s to today over 110 billion, right? So it's been a huge force multiplier in India's GDP growth. It created almost 50% of all organized jobs uh, in the last five years in India, right? That one sector. What we see now as the opportunity for digitization of India is almost five times that opportunity. Right? So as large as that opportunity is, the opportunity to use digital and technologies around that to enable India's growth in education, in agriculture, in power, as Alok talked about, smart metering and, and transmission sectors, that is almost five times, and that will be between 20 to 30% of India's incremental GDP growth. That's why I think the Prime Minister's launch of both Digital India, not just Digital India, but the startup campaign, the whole Skills India campaign around some of these technologies is so important because the reality of this is it's going to be another one of those major engines that transforms India. Just to give you a simple example, India will never produce as many doctors as it needs. Never. It's just physically impossible if you looked at any healthcare statistics to get to the number of doctors in rural India that the population really needs. Today with technologies including remote healthcare technologies and simple call-in numbers where you can actually diagnose simple remedies in a five to 10 questions being asked, you're able to save lives in remote parts of the country. That's the change it's making. It's not just an economic change, but a huge sociological and, uh, and human change as well. Globally, there are some concerns about how automation and technologies more broadly are impacting sort of the labor market or the ability of um, middle skill or lower skill workers to actually increase incomes because automation in a way is kind of, uh, you know, eroding the job market. I think India comes at it uh, in a way from a very different perspective because 
with the amount of inefficiency and the barriers to the delivery of some of these services to people on the one hand. And on the other hand, already the fact that a large share of the labor market is in the informal and unorganized sector. So you put these two th things together and you really find that many of these digital platforms, which again are, you know, we are very much at an inflection point. We're going to see them uh, getting near ubiquitous in many ways. The ability of everyone to have a smartphone which has some form of digitally verifiable identity and payments. That is such an empowering tool that even from a labor market perspective, we would see a lot of innovation in the form of, you know, all kinds of online talent marketplaces for relatively medium or even low-skilled jobs, informal jobs, you know, in the security business or, you know, driver's jobs or, you know, uh, independent small operators and entrepreneurs just having access to markets because of these marketplaces. So from where we come from, it's a massive leapfrogging opportunity from almost every perspective. And uh, I think it's also inspiring innovation that could have um, a lot of applications and relevance outside India as well. Maybe just to build on that with two comments. One is I think there actually have been some pretty fundamental regulatory or policy transformations over the last two years uh, under the current prime minister. Right. First and most importantly is the passage of the goods and services tax, which is actually going to create an integrated market in India for the first time. It's value-added tax uh, regime, which is going to dramatically reduce all of the inefficiencies and barriers within the internal market. Right? And frankly, we see that as a massive flip, uh, Philip, as far as global companies are concerned, because now your ability to drive intelligent transportation networks, fast logistics, delivery of services is dramatically transformed. Right? The second big part of this is around the financial infrastructure. So whether it's been the provision of what they call the Jandhan Yojana, which is 100 million plus bank accounts enabled by mobile phones, and the provision of benefits transfers direct to people's bank accounts using their mobile phone and the Aadhaar unique identifier. It's a unique platform. There is no other country in the world that has this scale of mobile-driven bank accounts with the ability to now transfer money, services directly to the beneficiary without all of the leakages that have plagued the sector for many, many years. What about manufacturing? India's manufacturing sector has lagged behind China's, but there are substantial opportunities to invest. What's the appeal to potential investors as a base, certainly beyond low-cost labor, and how can companies in the manufacturing sector be as competitive as possible? So firstly, I think um, to two of the points Alok made earlier, there has been a, a pretty fundamental shift in the last few years in India. Uh, and just to pick up on one, the goods and services tax that was passed by parliament a few weeks ago. Not only does it does it create enormous advantages in, um, in logistics and taxation and a whole bunch of other benefits around that, but it dramatically enables manufacturing in the country. Because historically, uh, manufacturing was splintered and fragmented across the country based on where uh, you got the tax break or where there was advantage. It was not economically or geographically the best place to manufacture something. So there were actually um, quite hilarious consequences where essentially shipment of goods, let's say 400 kilometers hinterland into India to the port was more expensive than taking a container from that port to Brazil, right? And that is the kind of complexity that India's logistics networks enabled by local state taxes and octroi and so on was creating. 
Now with one uh, landmark amendment, you actually now have production sites that can scale and scale not only for the domestic market, but as China has done for the international market. So now for the first time, you've got a single market unified across the country, which has a billion plus consumers um, ratcheting up their spending, along with the fact that you can actually get efficient logistics to serve international markets. That's never been happening before, right? The second thing is, and I think this is where India will be different from China and many of the countries that have jumped on the manufacturing opportunity to expand, is that India's manufacturing opportunity will be different. By the nature of where we live and the times we live in, it will be more technologically enabled. So it may create different types of jobs. It may not create that many physical jobs as China has done, right? But there's a whole slew of other jobs it will create. For example, when Anu and I were researching the um, internet report, uh, we came back with this notion of a technology uh, enabler. And what it simply meant was that in villages in India, you actually don't have that many people who are able to use the internet or able to use digital technologies, and whether it's for healthcare, for education, for a whole bunch of purposes. And so we found that actually banks and other companies were having somebody standing next to a kiosk just showing people how to use it. And yes, those jobs will be transient for a particular period of time, but those transient jobs are massive in India because you've got a $1 billion pop one million people population, right? And so you'll see different types of opportunities. And yes, with some of the landmark registration, you'll see a huge opportunity in manufacturing opening up both domestically and globally. I'd also say it's a very, it's a favorite pastime here to compare with China. I think it's actually irrelevant uh, because the real opportunity is, as Nosher said, in the domestic market. And the second thing is that there actually are already world-class manufacturing capabilities in India. Right? So if you look at auto components, you look at pharmaceuticals, right? you look at aspects uh, of uh, textiles, textiles right? you actually have those. So the real question for us is not whether or not we do and become you know, the world's factory in the way that China has, but what are the relevant aspects of goods and services for India? What are the new types of jobs in the way that Noshir described? And frankly, where do we have real advantages that we can definitely export? So not only in auto components and pharma, but when you start to look at all sorts of other services, you now see a lot of financial innovation here in terms of serving bottom of the pyramid customers that you can actually scale up, whether it's low-cost digital insurance, paperless uh, credit, right, SME and supply chain financing. All of those sorts of services are actually both enabling the SME sector, which is actually the big job growth sector in India, as well as can be part of future global supply chains as well. Just to amplify the uh, maybe differences or the irrelevance of comparison with China, I think India's model might well be quite different in terms of not being a mega scale manufacturing facilities located along the seaboard and primarily serving an overseas market. For a whole variety of reasons, uh, India actually has had and perhaps will have even in future lower labor mobility and internal migration than China has. We are much more culturally diverse. And, uh, you know, the willingness and the desire to actually move very far from your own, you know, cultural context is actually not that high. Having said that, therefore, that's a big opportunity. As you think about with the goods and service tax, you know, you're removing artificial barriers. Jobs and businesses can move to the right areas which are fundamentally near local markets. 
And there's actually a big segment of mid-sized cities, the cities which are from half a million to about four million in population, which have a huge potential in terms of upside to scale up. A much lower share of urban India lives in these mid-sized cities. We would actually think that a lot of the jobs could be around services, knowledge-enabled services now thanks to IT, as well as the sort of what in MGI we call the supplier-proximate industries, where there are advantages to being near consumers, uh, whether in terms of logistics or whether in terms of, you know, just being more responsive to consumer needs. So whether it's an auto, two-wheelers, specialty chemicals, there are a whole lot of manufacturing jobs that can actually be supplier and market friendly locate uh, in market friendly locations given this critical mass that we're likely to see not just in a concentrated way but much more spread out over india can i just also say that the infrastructure point we talked about earlier is also relevant in the indian context right so manufacturing for us does not need to be huge large scale semiconductor foundries right for us actually having road contractors and road developers scale up is thousands and tens of thousands of jobs Right? So there's effectively the SME supply chain that Anu talked about. Right? Similarly, when we talk about water treatment, we talk about you know, appropriate city-based services. Right? So effectively, manufacturing with a technology capability relevant to our country right, is actually hugely important. And the infrastructure sector is actually where a lot of the job creation is. So we really think there's an opportunity here that you know, needs to be in India for India, as opposed to worrying about anyone else. Let's move to uh, the discussion about how do you translate all of this enormous potential into performance, uh, the challenges that have to do with execution for companies on the ground. What are your thoughts on the best strategies? It's a big question, <laughs> so I'm not sure there's any a generic answer. But let, let me just share a few thoughts. Uh, you know, for the last five years, we've convened a group of CEOs, 30 CEOs of the largest global companies. And we've met, you know, in private sessions several times a year to really talk, talk about what does it take to win in India, right? We all see the opportunity. What does it take to win? What does it take to execute? And there are four or five themes I'd like to share, uh, you know, that might be useful, right? First is, and it will sound soft, but it's very real, which is commitment through the cycle, right? As Noshir said earlier, this will be in spurts. There will be air pockets. But the companies that have been successful have said, look, I'm going to stay firm through the cycle and not just come in and out of the market because the rest of your domestic partners, network suppliers are there for good and they're there for the long term. So if you don't take a view that I'm going to stay in through the cycle, right, you'll have a very hard time actually being successful. The second theme is this notion of actually building an India-centric business model. right? And that means identifying the three or four segments within the country that you want to participate in. It means, as many of the you know, electronics, the Korean companies have done, actually customizing their products to be relevant to how Indian com consumers use them. So for example, cars often need to be designed so that you have six or seven family members, not four, right? Uh, you need to have electronics in a way that people listen to music and watch TV. So there's a very different way in which you need to understand the Indian consumer and customize to that. Uh, the other aspect of that, which is specific to the India-centric model, is that this is not about selling the product. You actually have to sell products and services. So a number of the big industrial or engineering companies we've worked with, right, big turbine manufacturers and others, struggled for a long time, big global brands, because they were trying to sell in products that were not relevant because you couldn't actually install the product in India. 
right? So if you don't have a capability to both provide the product and the services together, which means installation, which means managing the local uh, EPC contractor, which means providing after-sales service at a very high quality level, understanding the complexities and challenges of Indian infrastructure, so on and so forth. So two examples here, one is consumer customization, the second is product plus service, not just product alone, right? The third big point is really around empowering your talent, right? Uh, multinationals in particular in India have actually struggled over the last few years because what's happened is the best talent doesn't want to work in a remote branch office with no empowerment, right? You might get people who are fresh graduates who still want a good brand on their resume, but they leave two years later and they'd rather work for an entrepreneurial Indian company who's going to give them huge growth opportunity. So this notion of saying, look, I'm going to actually have an empowered CEO for this country, given the size and scope, right? If you just have a representative coordinating different global products, you will fail. You need an empowered CEO and frankly, empowered middle management. Now what we're seeing with global companies is they're creating global leadership positions out of India, right? So they're located in India running Asia, located in India running, uh, you know, uh, the Middle East or Africa. And that's created a very different talent proposition. So the third big point that we've learned through this uh, CEO forum is that you've got to empower the local organization, both not just the CEO, although the CEO is critical, but also create a path for senior leaders to feel that they have both the empowerment, the entrepreneurship, and the scope. Uh, otherwise, they'll just go do something else. And, and the last point I'll make uh, is really having the right alignment with the government, right? And, you know, by the way, this is an important but sensitive point. People say, well, you know, how do we deal with the government at different levels? The truth is the best companies do so with the absolute commitment to ethics and values. But what that means in practice is understanding how do you get in line with where the government is already focused. So those who are focused on smart cities, those who are focused on skill India, all the points that Norshir was making earlier, you're going to be much more successful if you're in the flow and are able to take advantage of that and demonstrate that you're doing good for the country in terms of jobs, employment, so on and so forth. And as long as you're demonstrating that you're developing the country, whether you're domestic or global, you'll find that the government is extremely supportive. To win in India, you need to be relevant in India. And we see too many uh, companies coming into India because they see the consumer opportunity or they see some opportunity, defense, consumer, etc. But they're not relevant. They're not relevant to what the government is trying to get done. They're not relevant to what the people really need. And inevitably, if you play in a small sweet spot, which is, let's say, your global sweet spot or your premium pricing sweet spot, you will fail for two reasons. Number one, you'll create a price umbrella for competition, local competition to come and essentially disrupt your business model, first in India and then possibly in emerging markets elsewhere. Right? And the second is, you won't be, to Alok's point, in line with where the country needs to go. And therefore, you'll find that um, there is no reason for people to care about the company and where it's going and what it needs to do. So the, it's very important for companies to know that you have to be relevant to India. And that's not just a CSR activity. You've got to feel that the contribution you're making to the country in whatever way or shape or form 
that the company is passionate about is relevant to India and its citizens. And that's what will enable you to be successful down the road. The second is we've seen too many companies um, sending in what I would call a professional manager. The one is who is absolutely adept at managing the matrix. And while that's very helpful in headquarters, it doesn't help on the ground, right? And what you need is actually serial entrepreneurs, people who are mavericks because India is volatile. You will see that volatility. So you need trusted mavericks, if there is a word like that, right? To go behind and essentially change the business model where it is appropriate and be trusted by the corporation that yes, I have X, Y, Z there and he or she will actually act with the best values, with the best of intentions to make sure both the company is relevant to India as well as its international needs. And those are the companies that are more successful. We've seen them grow enormously quickly as Alok has said and actually be extremely profitable as well and create enormous market capitalizations and value based on that. Finally, any famous last words to the global listener, to those listening in the region that are really interested in accelerating their business in India? I think the simple thing I would say is that um, going big in India is a question, now we increasingly becoming convinced, is a question of when and not if. We've had a lot of stops and starts. There's no question about it. There's been 20 years of promise versus you know, actual performance. But one thing has been clear even in those 20 years, which is the cost of being successful in, in, in India goes up significantly every year. So you could choose when you actually want to make India or other another emerging market uh, a real core piece of the global strategy, but every year that cost goes up. Anu, Nashir, and Alok, I'd like to thank you for sharing your insights today. And thank you for joining us and listening in. If you want to find out more about our knowledge and insights on India, head over to mckinsey.com. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.